WALT. It's the Midnight Disease. Sam Dingman coming to you on the Electro Voice RE20, positively thrumming against the Transformers of the Great River ME1NV, piped from there through the Harrison 32EQ, the RNC 500, and into your ears. Analog tones on a Friday afternoon, keeping you company in the moon cabin. As I recently wrote to a friend in an email, this week I wore a light jacket into a Starbucks and felt like my true self. Happy early autumn, everybody. Happy Gilmore season, as I've heard it called. Hope you're channeling your inner Lorelei, your inner Rory in these troubled times, accessing and channeling some some optimism against long odds in a world where it's easy to feel like a misfit. Speaking of the true self, I had this experience this week. I came into the studio the other day, and I usually, um, for lunch, I always order the same thing from this deli in the neighborhood. I always order the same thing. I go on Grubhub, and I put in the order, and I punch it in, 20 minutes later, a very friendly guy on an e-bike shows up, hands it to me, and we have a nice little exchange. But this being light jacket season, I just got this leather jacket. Uh, if you listen to our Mark Pagan episode, you will know the backstory. I'm loving this jacket. It's just one of those jackets that you put it on and you feel like, oh, this is what grown-up Sam in teenage Sam's head looked like. That's him. That's him. He, A little piece of that dream came true, <laughs> is how I feel when I put on this jacket. And it was a crisp autumn day, and I thought, you know what? Instead of getting the lunch delivered today, I'm going to walk down to the deli and pick it up in person. So that's what I did. I go walking in in my leather jacket. I, I, I make the order for pickup on Grubhub, and I walk down the block and walk into the deli, and I say, hello, I'm here to pick up my order. My name is Sam Dingman. And the counterman looks at me and he goes, oh, you usually get it delivered. And I, I was like, yes, yes, that's right. And he was like, I was about to call you just to make sure you hadn't made a mistake. And I, I just smiled and said, thanks, man. It felt so nice to be recognized. You know, uh, here's this this thing that used to be a vector of local neighborly connection, ordering lunch from a local deli. And nowadays, it's intermediated by this app that we rely on so that we minimize our human interaction. It's supposed to remove the friction of the food-getting experience. Thank you so much, benevolent tech overlords. And here, we, in this moment, found a way to break through that. And to be reminded that this is about a guy who works in a neighborhood buying his sustenance from another guy who works in the neighborhood. And that that means we're connected somehow. It was just a little reflection of that. And it felt good. And I was reminded back in 2019 in the throes of working on Family Ghosts, I was staying at the studio until very, very, very late every night. And... I would come home 
get back to my apartment at about 10 and just be completely exhausted. I wouldn't have eaten. And this is a little embarrassing, but I wouldn't, I didn't even have the energy to walk across the street and get dinner from the diner. So I would open up Grubhub and I would punch in the order again. I would always order the same thing. <laughs> in that case, it was a, a chicken sandwich with feta cheese on it, uh, lettuce, tomato, and onion, side of French fries. Got it every night, five nights a week, gained a lot of weight. And I would, I would walk in the apartment, I would punch that order in on Grubhub, and I would just lie flat on the couch and wait for them to walk it across the street and deliver it to me like a, like a prince. And so one night, I get home, and I just finished a, an edit of an episode. I was, I was feeling good, and I was like, you know what? I'm going to shake it up tonight. I'm going to keep it fresh. Let's get pasta instead of the chicken sandwich with feta cheese. So I open up Grubhub, put the order in send it through, lay down on the couch. Two minutes later, the phone rings. It's the diner. And they go, hey, man, don't you usually order the chicken sandwich with feta? (laughs) And I was like, yes. And they said, okay, we just wanted to make sure you you didn't make a mistake. And I said, no, I didn't, but, but thank you. Thank you for checking. It's nice to be seen. It is nice to be recognized. In a world that increasingly encourages us to only recognize ourself, it is nice when people recognize people and say, hey, just wanted you to know, I noticed you, I see who you are. Here's a little something I noticed this week. Some great writing in the New Yorker magazine, of all places. I wanted to start doing this thing on the show sometimes where I just call out little bits of writing that that make me jealous, that make me go like, good God, I, I wish I had the writerly skill to come up with that line. Check this out. This is written by Gideon Lewis Krauss, Uh, And it was uh, part of a profile on Dan Ariely, which I mentioned on the show a week or two ago. This is the line that Gideon wrote to describe Dan Ariely in person. I quote, A stimulating and slightly unnerving interlocutor. He has coarse black bangs, tinted eyebrows, and the frank but hooded aspect of an off-duty mentalist or a veteran card counter. What? An off-duty mentalist or a veteran card counter? We could sit here and unpack just those two phrases for this entire episode. An off-duty mentalist. Somebody who, when he's on duty, can read minds. And when he's off-duty, is in some kind of tenuous resting state where his powers are evident, but it's also evident that he's not using them. What a great way to describe somebody. So that's, that's lines that made me jealous this week. Um, also on display in that piece, two of the funniest names uh, for real humans to have that, that I've read in a long time. Those names, of course, are Dirk Smeesters and Norbert Schwarz. <laughs> Those are comedy sketch names. 
Dirk Smeesters, and Norbert Schwarz. Speaking of eyebrows, I did go to the Moth this week, the Moth Story Slam, which uh, I bring up periodically on the show, and I assume that folks know what it is. It is a bi-weekly open mic where people tell true stories from their lives into a microphone in a theater full of people. And the theme was haunted for the moth this week. And so I brought this story about this incident from when I was in college where my roommate Garrett and I, who is the person actually uh, that I got into radio with, Garrett and I had a radio show on the campus radio station. It was called, uh, in a fleeting moment of self-awareness, Audience of Two. And the implications of that name will be evident in a moment. Uh, The story is basically about how we noticed at some point that there was a guy in the class below us who, his real name was Arthur, but he went by the name Ace. And based on the fact, purely based on the fact that Garrett and I had both just recently seen the second Ace Ventura movie, where there's a scene where Ace Ventura makes his eyebrows dance up and down, We thought it would be funny if this guy Ace was nicknamed Captain Eyebrows. I want to stress that we didn't know Ace at all, and that there was nothing even remotely remarkable about his eyebrows. It was just a real A to C connection that Garrett and I made, found funny, and if he and I were normal people, that's where it would have ended. But we decided to turn this into this ongoing prank where we went to Ace's dorm room and we crossed out his name (laughs) on uh, his door and replaced it with a sign that said Captain Eyebrows. Then we started leaving him these little taunting messages on the whiteboard outside of his room, pretending we were this band of evil doers called the Tweezer Boys who were presumably coming to pluck Ace's eyebrows. We didn't really think it through. We just thought it was a funny idea to invent this persona that this guy didn't ask for and then basically force him to invest in our bit. And the story that I told on Monday at The Moth is about coming to a realization in my later years. I want to stress that this was decades ago that Garrett and I did this. Coming to a realization that that was a time in our lives when we were so desperate to be taken seriously as comedians that we weren't doing a good job of recognizing that the entire world doesn't exist to be in service of our jokes. And maybe if you want to be a successful comedian, you do have to think that a little bit. But uh, for me, this is a story about taking a bit too far and realizing that humor doesn't exist in a vacuum. Anyway, this is actually a story that I first worked on probably 12 years ago, and I had this interesting experience doing it in 2023, where I was realizing that when I first wrote it, Garrett and I were definitely the butt of the joke, but Captain Eyebrows (laughs) was was also kind of the butt of the joke in this because there's this element to it where we all get out of college and Ace goes on to become a prosperous investment banker, whereas Garrett and I are 
trying to uh, become famous making comedy videos in our apartment. And our signature video is this video called Lion Boy, Boy Lion, which notably is not a video about a character named Lion Boy, Boy Lion. That would be too easy. It is a series of videos starring two film critics, played by Garrett and myself, in which we only review one movie, which is called Lion Boy, Boy Lion, the Lion Boy, Boy Lion story. Somehow did not go viral, that YouTube series. Anyway, when I first wrote the story, I sort of thought it was okay for the jokes to be at everybody's expense. Garrett and I's expense, of course, for taking the joke too far, but also a little bit Ace's expense. Because come on, he's a he's an investment banker. But the thing I realized as a 41-year-old is that what that story is really about is me having such a deep need to be seen as a certain kind of person that I decide that someone else's needs don't matter as much as my needs. And I tried to tweak the ending of the story to reflect that. And so I, I came up with this, with this ending that is much more of a loving but necessary indictment of myself for giving in to this childish impulse in the name of some vision of a, a comedic identity. I, th- I thought that it was worth someone else's boundaries to achieve. And it was very interesting doing the performance because I felt the audience pull away at the end. One of the things that's cool about going to the moth is at its root, it is just an open mic. An open mic is a place where you go generally to workshop stuff, to get something up on its feet in front of people and see how it lands. The moth is obviously this very famous, prestigious version of an open mic, and so it feels like a very proper show. And there's also a competition element to it that, you know, if you, if the audience judges give you the highest scores, then you win. Um, and then you get to perform in the next round of, of, of story slams. And, and that's all very well and good, but going there expecting to win, I don't think is a very useful artistic impulse. What is very valuable is if you treat it as a place to workshop a story in front of 350 people, because <laughs> that's how many people come out to these shows. I mean, that's an incredible opportunity. So that's what I, that's, that's how I try to approach it, is I'm going to get my story up on its feet and feel how it reverberates in the room. And so I do the story, and for the first, I would say, two-thirds of it, I could feel that the room was really with me. They were laughing in a sort of knowing way. They could feel my ruefulness at looking back at this idiotic behavior. Um, they thought the Captain Eyebrows bit was funny within the context of me saying, I know this isn't funny, but we thought it was funny. That was all really happening and really, really working. They were on my side. And then at the end, I lost them. Like the, the story really just drooped at the very end. And I, I finished and I got kind of tepid applause. And I could just feel, you know, you can feel this when you walked off stage. You could hear people sort of murmuring in the crowd like, what was that? Like, it just, something got lost at the very end. And so I, of course, spent the entire rest of 
the night and week trying to figure out what it was. Like, where did I lose them? Because they were, we were all riding the same wave and then they switched to a different wave and rode a different wave into shore and I just kind of surfed by myself to a soft landing on a solitary beach. And the as best I've been able to come up with it, I think it's one of two things. One is that I think I maybe went a little too abruptly sincere. So I'm telling this story, and I I was doing it in a, a sort of a stand-up type of tone, if that makes sense. I was kind of making fun of myself, but also hitting joke lines that I have come up with over the years of workshopping this piece that I feel like are funny if you are understanding all of the characters in the story, but are also, I don't know, hopefully effective little bits of wordplay. And then at the end, very suddenly, because of this 41-year-old person revelation I was telling you about, I switch kind of abruptly into real self-analysis. Like, what was I really after with this Captain Eyebrows bit, and what do I make of it now looking back? And so I wonder... If the room got thrown by that pivot, if the room was was fine for this to be a sort of a breezy riff on youthful disregard for social mores, and when I then decided to turn it into something quasi-profound, they were like, no, no, that, that's, not, that's not the promise you made us when, when the story started. So you, you've you've betrayed your premise. I also sort of wonder, the thing about the moth that I have noticed is that the, the moth audience does not like stories that live in sort of murky ethical territory. The, the moth audience likes a clean ethic. It's fine if, if you are a beacon of righteousness in the midst of morally dubious behavior. You, you hear stories about that all the time at the moth, people who speak out against racism, people who speak out against sexism and misogyny, all of which are obviously very good things for people to do in general. I would never dispute that. But it doesn't always make for the most interesting story. You know what I mean? Like, one virtuous hero steps forward from the crowd of imperfect people. A perfect person emerges. You know, that that's not really real life, right? Like. All of us are imperfect. All of us are doing our best to be a little bit more perfect or are telling ourselves that we're doing our best while we allow ourselves to not do our best. And that that feels a little bit more real to me. And that is the mode that I was trying to work in in this story. And there was nothing triumphal about it. There was, there was no transcendence. It was sort of a, a bitter empathetic piece of self-revelation, which, as I'm saying it out loud right now, I mean, even just as I said those words, the sentence, my, my voice drooped in energy level. So maybe that's why in a live performance environment with 350 people, it didn't connect. I don't know. But it just is fascinating to have this experience. A couple other things I noticed at The Moth recently that I wanted to share. One is... There is just something so eternal about stories that 
reflect on longing for love and connection. And I, I thought about this because this very talented storyteller I've seen a few times at The Moth, his name is James Gusner, and he did this story recently where he starts out and he says, you know, I've always had this, this kind of quixotic fantasy that I'm going to meet the woman that I fall in love with because we're going to be at Trader Joe's and we both reach for the same avocado. And that is a banger of a way to start a story because it's so specific. It's so endearing. It's so obviously him. And all of us have a similar quixotic dream or have had at some point in our lives, a similar dream of like the ultimate meet cute that leads to our greatest love. We, everybody has felt some version of that. And the reason that was such a genius way for James to start his story, I think, is that in that moment when he paints that avocado picture, we are all with him. 350 people sitting in the dark. We're all looking up at him and everything else, our, our identities as separate beings falls away. We are all him in that moment reaching for an avocado or doing mentally our own version of reaching for the avocado. And James has such extraordinary power over us in that moment. He could go anywhere after that in the story and we will follow him because he has made all of us into one being. He is all of us and, and we are all him. And it is such a simple thing, but, but starting a story with a specific image like that, that touches something so innately human, that is a form of spellcasting. And it is one of the reasons I love to go to the moth every time I can, even if I'd, my name doesn't get picked out of the hat, is to just to feel that one moment like that can it can carry you for for a week. Another moment I wanted to share from a recent moth performance that is much less significant, but it just made me giggle, is this guy told a story about <laughs> trying to pull off this prank when he was in high school. Um, where he had this book, and on the cover of the book, it said, Sex Report. And it was just a, it's a prank book that when you open it up, it has one of those little teeny pea-sized bags of, of gunpowder that you can get at like a dollar store. You know, you like throw them on the sidewalk and they pop. And they're harmless. And I guess what happens with Sex Report is you open it up and one of those jumps out and it pops. So you are lightly slapped on the wrist for indulging in your curiosity about a little book that says sex report. But I just thought there was something so funny about that that's just those two words together would be enough to make somebody be like, I got to see what's in that book. Sex report, eh? <laughs> I just thought that was so stupid. And I did, um, just in case you're wondering, go over to tricksupply.com. And discover that you you can pick up your very own sex report prank for just $4.99, my friends. And uh, I laughed again because there is a helpful disclaimer at tricksupply.com associated with this listing where it says, uh, this is not a real book. It cannot be read. 
lest you be the kind of person who goes to tricksupply.com looking for the sex report prank and then yourself gets so taken in by the promise of a report about sex lurking between the covers of this book that you forget that it's a prank. This, this disclaimer will hopefully remind you of the true nature of the sex report. Can I talk to you about Killers of the Flower Moon for a second? I know that there is a lot of discourse, capital D, about this movie. I do not pretend that anything that I have to contribute is going to be in any way definitive. I just wanted to speak to this conversation that is going on about how long the movie is and whether movies really need to be that long and and why that is made as a creative choice. Killers of the Flower Moon, for those of you who don't realize, is three and a half hours long. I love long movies. I want a deep sit in a story. I am I'm so there for that. I love the idea that an artist has so much to say about a story and wants to explore it so completely that they feel like they need that much runtime. I am always going to give them a chance to justify that creative choice. That doesn't mean that every long movie is good, <laughs> but when movies are that long, it, that is an enticing thing to me. But there are a lot of people saying that they, they think it's ridiculous that this movie is three and a half hours long. And I just wanted to offer that, and this is lightly spoilery, but not really. One of the things that's going on in this movie is that this woman named Molly Burkhart, who was a real, a real person, an um, Osage woman in the 1920s and 30s in Oklahoma, there is a part in this movie where multiple members of her family die in rapid succession. And if you know anything about Killers of the Flower Moon as a story, the circumstances of their deaths are are very suspicious. We will leave it at that. But it just occurred to me, just strictly from a storytelling standpoint, there's a lot of people who say, why make a long movie? Why not make it episodic? Why not split it up into a series of 40-minute episodes and make it a TV series? But the thing about that with with a storyline like what happens to Molly is, and again, this is based on true events. This is, there's, there's not a lot of inventing going on in this movie. A big part of what this movie is aiming to do, I think, is to ask you to try to appreciate what Molly's experience was. The powerlessness that she felt to lose this many people who were precious to her and the compounding grief that she experienced and the fact that she just had to sit with it and have very little guarantee that anybody was ever going to do anything about it. And in an episodic show, the temptation, I think, would have been very strong to divide those deaths out across multiple episodes in the series so that you have dramatic action in each episode that the characters are dealing with. But think about what you would lose by making that choice. One, you'd be watching that TV show at home. So you'd be more likely to be second screening. And maybe you would 
binge watch the series, or maybe you would watch an episode of it and then not watch the next episode for another week or so or another couple of days. And what that changes about the experience of Molly's story is that by containing it all in one three-and-a-half-hour movie, you are hostage to those feelings. You can't escape them. You can't take a break from them. You can't look at your phone because you're in a movie theater. You can't give yourself some time before you come back to the story. There is a very faint way in which you have to do exactly what Molly did, which is you have to just move forward in the haze of these horrors. And it gives you, in some tiny way, a little ping of what that experience must have been like for her. So, I don't know. A movie being long doesn't always just mean that the director is self-indulgent and doesn't know how to, how to edit or cut things out. Sometimes it means that. But this is Martin Scorsese we're talking about here. He's doing it for a reason. <laughs> you may not agree with the reason, but there's a reason, and I think it's worth sitting with it. There is also, in Killers of the Flower Moon, maybe the best death scene that I have ever watched, uh, which is I know is sort of a weirdly morbid thing to say, but one of the people who dies in Molly's family is, is her mother. And I mentioned that Molly is Osage. Her mother is Osage as well. And the mother has been sick for a long time. We have seen her physically wasting away. Her body is weak. She can barely move it. She can hardly breathe. She spends a lot of the movie just kind of limp in this bed. And so we reach the moment of her death, and we see her leaning back in her bed, and then she shuts her eyes, and the sound cuts out, and she opens her eyes, and we see standing before her She's in the exact same physical surroundings. There's no, you know, filter on the lens or anything. It's, it's like she just blinked, basically. And standing in front of her are three people who we don't necessarily know their relationship to her. But they are very clearly fellow Osage folks who she feels warmly towards because we see this smile of relief break out across her face and they just stand here and uh, stand there in front of her looking at her with this deep love and compassion they don't say anything she doesn't say anything to them there's no sound throughout this entire sequence and the mother who again has been so sickly to this point she just rises up and i'm not talking about a special effect where she floats up she just of her own strength and accord she straightens her back she leans towards these people. They reach their hands out to her. They help her climb out of the bed. And they all walk off into the countryside together, just smiling. And I am aware that there are Osage traditions being referenced in that scene that I'm probably not fully clocking, and I, I don't want to come across as insensitive to that. But it was such an act of it was just such a a beautiful choice that the movie decided to pause to show that show us this 
And it also made me think about this idea that I, I find so moving, which is that no matter whether you're Osage or anything else, it invites you to consider this idea that, that death is not losing something. It is maybe going towards something else or, or perhaps a homecoming, a return to a place where we are already familiar and already known. And to have that experience, that, that little, you know, this scene is maybe a minute long. And I can't stop thinking about it after, after this, again, three and a half hour movie. Just that scene alone was, was worth the ticket. And to close out, I wanted to offer a quote, which this week is going to come from the recently deceased jazz pianist Carla Bley. With music, you can get away with stuff that makes no sense in words. I'll talk to you next week. Thank you for listening. Oh, the streets of Rome are filled with rubble. Ancient footprints are everywhere. You can almost think that you see.